As we return to the book of Joshua this morning, we join the Israelites once more on the western side of the Jordan River, where after 40 years of wilderness wandering, they have finally crossed over into the land of promise. And they've gathered stones from the midst of the riverbed and set them up as a memorial so that they and their children will never forget the miracle that God did in their midst, bringing them through the midst of the water courses on dry ground so that they were able to scoop up small boulders from its floor. And having crossed over in that way, we saw in chapter 5 that they cleaned up years of neglect by circumcising all the males who had been born in the wilderness and that they celebrated the Passover to commemorate their exodus from Egypt 40 years prior. And then at the end of chapter 5, something very significant happens. Outside the walls of the great Canaanite city of Jericho, which will be the first stronghold against which the Israelite men must go up in battle, outside the walls of that city, Joshua encounters a great warrior standing with his sword drawn from its sheath. And the warrior announces himself in verse 14 as the captain of the host of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's army, in other words. And Joshua, who is himself the captain of the Lord's army, bows low to the ground and pays this man homage, asking him what word he has for Joshua to hear. So Joshua has recognized a superior in the Lord's chain of command. And in the final verse of chapter 5, we get a very strong hint as to actually who that superior is because he speaks the same words to Joshua that the Lord himself spoke to Moses from the burning bush so many years before. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And why was the place holy? Not, I submit to you, because of anything sacred about that particular spot, but because the same being was now occupying that spot as had occupied the burning bush in the days of Moses. And at the end of chapter 5 then, in other words, what we find is that Joshua is encountering the Lord himself. This warrior is probably the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who eventually came and took human flesh and human nature to himself and died for our sins. But here he is, centuries prior, come down in temporary human appearance to give Joshua a message. And Joshua, like Moses before him, takes off his shoes in his presence. And what has the Lord to say to the newly promoted general? Remember, that was Joshua's question in chapter 5, verse 14. What has my Lord to say to his servant? So what does the Lord have to say to Joshua? Well, we find out as we turn now to chapter 6, which we will read in its entirety. Joshua chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, 
and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. Ban, it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword." Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all.
the land. Father, as you were with Joshua and as you were with your people all those years ago, we pray that you would come and be with us now in power, speaking to us the truth of your word, making it lodge in our hearts, in our consciences, and flow out of our lives in obedience and praise, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I never did notice before just how prominent is the theme of words in this chapter, the importance of words. This running thread about words actually begins in chapter 5 when Joshua asks, what has my Lord to say to his servant? He wants to hear the captain's words. And as we saw in verses 2 through 5, the Lord responds with words, which in and of itself is not necessarily unusual or surprising. But then there is also the exact obedience to those words that follows in verses 6 through 21, and the precise fulfillment on God's part of those words in verse 20. And then there is also the fact in verse 20 that it was when the Israelites used their words that the walls of Jericho fell, and the fact in verse 10 that they were not to use those words until just precisely the right moment. And then there's Joshua's emphasis in verses 22 through 25 that the sons of Israel make good on the words that they had sworn to the harlot Rahab back in chapter 2. And then there are the words of prophetic curse that Joshua utters at the end of the chapter and which will be fulfilled chillingly at a later date. So I hope you see this theme running through the chapter. Words. Promise instructions, shouting, oaths, prophecy, words. Human words are so important in this chapter, and divine words as well. And I want us to think that out this morning, the importance of words as we find them here in Joshua chapter 6. Now, that's not the only theme that can be drawn out of this chapter, of course. We should also notice here that victory belongs to the Lord as Solomon would later pen in his Proverbs. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And that was certainly true in Jericho, wasn't it? The people did what they had to do, but it wasn't the sheer decibel rate of their voices that shook the walls of Jericho to the ground. It was the power of God. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And then there's also a lesson here which I hope to touch on as we go along concerning obedience to the Lord when his instructions don't seem to our finite minds to make much sense. That's worth noting here as well. But I want to organize our thoughts this morning around the theme of words. And I want to do so just under two main headings. We need to think about divine words and then we need to think about human words. Divine words and human words. So Let's begin by thinking about the divine words that we find in Joshua chapter 6. And we have them piled together 
primarily in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Those are divine words, and we need to make a few observations about those words. First of all, and quite briefly, I want you to notice that these divine words come in response to a request. God speaks in chapter 6 in response to Joshua's request in chapter 5, verse 14. What has my Lord to say to his servant? Now that's a marvelous request, isn't it? What has my Lord to say to his servant? So simple that we can remember it and make it our own every day of our lives. And yet their request is so profound that it is precisely what we ought to do every day of our lives. This ought to be a part of our daily prayer life, oughtn't it? To say something like this, what has my Lord to say to his servant today? Or in the words of Samuel at a later date, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That ought to be our request as well, oughtn't it? Not that we expect God to appear to us visibly or speak to us audibly as he did here for Joshua, but we say these kinds of words to God as a form of recognition that we really do need to hear from God on a regular basis. And so we ask him what he has to say to us, and then we open our Bibles and we begin to listen to what he has said. There's something to learn here, something to be spurred on by here in Joshua's desire to hear the voice of the Lord, in Joshua's willingness to listen to divine words. But then also, and to a greater length here, we need to think about the content of these divine words in verses 2 through 5, the content of God's words. God does not give Joshua here the sort of battle plans that the general himself would have likely drawn up, does he? There's nothing here about siege works or battering rams or archers or any of the normal elements of old world warfare. The Lord simply tells Joshua to send the Ark of the Covenant, the priests and the armies marching around the city seven days in a row, blowing their horns and doing that seven times over on the seventh day concluding with a great shout from all the people, and then the wall, as the song, the old song puts it, will come a-tumbling down. Quite simple, of course, but not the way you would normally want to attack a fortified city if you were a general. I've just been re-watching Ken Burns' great documentary series on the Civil War, which I coupled with some reading on Wikipedia about several of the main players involved. And one of the things that's been quite intriguing from my reading has been the discovery that even with all that has changed in warfare these last 150 years, the battle tactics of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Ulysses S. Grant 
are still being studied today as examples of tactical skill and military leadership. But I don't think any modern generals, even Bible-believing generals, are doing that with Joshua's plan of attack at the Battle of Jericho. Because God asked Joshua to engage in this battle in a way that defied human logic, didn't he? And Joshua was a man of military experience who would have understood this quite well. He knew that God was asking him to do something which under normal circumstances will not work. And he did it, of course. God did it so that the people of Israel will know, as I said a few moments ago, that victory belongs not to themselves and not to their general, but to the Lord. I just want you to ponder for a few moments what's going on here. Ponder the fact that God asked something of Joshua and his men that wouldn't have immediately made sense to their fleshly sensibilities and apart from him would not have worked at all. And I want to say to you, isn't this so often God's way of dealing with us? Yes, there are plenty of instructions in the Bible that even your unbelieving neighbors would agree just make pretty good common sense. The book of Proverbs, for instance, is filled with them, and we shouldn't devalue those instructions just because they seem obvious. But... Then, on the other hand, there's this whole thing, for instance, of prayer, where you and I speak words often about the most crucial matters in our lives out to a being that we cannot see and whom we have not heard ever speak audibly to us. And we do that, and our co-workers may think that it's nice that we do it, but most of them don't hold their breath waiting to see how God is going to answer, and many of us don't hold our breath often either. But maybe we have at least faith enough like the Israelites to do what God has told us to do in this matter of prayer, even though we could never do a high school science project demonstrating how it works. And then even more tangibly, there's the command in Malachi 3 that we didn't read when we read that chapter earlier about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse with the result being that you'll be more financially sound than you were before. And that doesn't make sense to the human mind either, does it? You're probably not going to find that in the money management books at Joseph Beth. Give 10% of your money away to God, no less, and you'll actually be better off financially in the end. And yet some of you have done it. You've chosen to do what God said, like the Israelites in this chapter, and God's instructions have proven correct. And then we might look, even more importantly, at the gospel of Jesus Christ, which contains perhaps the most counterintuitive set of claims that anyone could ever dream up, at least in our fleshly minds, our unconverted minds. First of all, the gospel comes to us and says your whole life is wrong. You're sold into bondage to sin. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And the wages of those sins is death. And how does the natural man respond to that? Either by scoffing at the reality of hell after death or by simply refusing to believe that he's actually one of the folks who might deserve to go there. 
Or, if he takes his sin seriously somewhat, the natural man responds to the message that sin has separated him from God by trying harder not to sin and doing good deeds that he thinks will make up for it and performing religious rites that he thinks will earn favor with God. And very often when you come to that person and explain to him the good news that Christ has done everything for him, that Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death are enough and that he may be right with God based on simple faith in this Christ, it's like water off of duck's back for many people with whom you share the gospel. You've given him a solution. You've shown her a way of salvation that's actually much simpler than all the rigmarole that the priest has told her she must do, but it doesn't fit the paradigm of how she thinks things will work. Being right with God based on the righteousness of another makes as much sense to the natural mind as if you told them that the United States Army was going to defeat the Taliban by marching around their headquarters 13 times over a period of seven days and then shouting until the walls crumbled down. And if the army decided to do that, we'd be rightly skeptical because God hasn't told them to do it that way. But... Here, God has spoken. Here in Joshua 6, and here in the Gospel, and in a number of other places in His Word, God has spoken, and He has asked us to do that which, were it not right there in black and white in His Word, would make absolutely no sense at all. And yet, when we obey, we find that God's words are always correct. And so, we must have a heart like Joshua to actually want to hear what the Lord has to say. And then, because He is God, we must not think ourselves wiser than Him. We must not scoff at or be afraid of those places in the Bible where God asks us to do things that our neighbors might think are merely quaint, our co-workers will view perhaps as laughable, our unbelieving family might never try in a million years, and things that frankly we ourselves sometimes have trouble believing will actually work. No, no, we must simply put our hands to the plow and obey the divine words. And I wonder if there is anything like that in your life right now. You know what the Bible says, and you see other Christians around you doing what the Bible says, but you've told yourself, so far at least, that it won't work for you. Your circumstances are different. You're actually the exception to this truth in God's Word. And so you've continued in some sin that has proven quite convenient in some ways because you haven't trusted God enough that He will meet your needs if you stop. Or maybe you've failed to take some step of faith, some step of obedience to the plain text of the Bible because all the worldly wisdom that you can think up doesn't seem to support the idea of your doing so. But I say to you this morning, if Joshua had taken that tack, if Israel had studied your battle plans in this regard, they'd never have laid hold of the city of Jericho. And neither will you if the plain words of the Bible aren't enough to convince you of the will of God. And so look at the Israelites in verses 6 through 21. We won't read those verses again just now, but if you read them, you'll discover that they followed God's word, at least for now, exactly The soldiers marched just like God had said, and so did the priests with the trumpets and the ark for seven consecutive days, just like God said, and seven times around the city on the seventh day, just like God said. 
And then at the end of it all, at the long blast of the trumpet, they all shouted in unison, just like God said. And then compare the promise that God makes in verse 5 with the result that he gives in verse 20, and you will find that the wall fell down flat and the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, just like God said it would happen. And the exact same thing will be true in your life as well. Fulfillment of God's promises doesn't always happen as immediately, of course, as it did for the Israelites that day at Jericho. But when God's people obey His word, God never lets them down. God never leaves them hanging. God never fails in His promises. When God's people do just what He has said, God also does just what He has said He will do in response. The victories he has promised to us, his New Testament people, are mostly different from the ones achieved by the Israelites in this book. But whatever God has promised to do for those who keep his word, he will assuredly do. So I just ask again, what is it for you? What has God asked in his word that maybe you're still balking at, still cowering from, still avoiding the implications of, because your natural way of thinking says it can't possibly be the most feasible option? Let today be the day that you begin to trust the Lord. And let me especially urge this upon you. If you are one of those who has heard the good news of Jesus over and over again, the message that you don't have to save yourself, the message that Christ has done all the saving work for you, the message that God loves you and that you can be right with him by simple faith in his son, if you have heard that message over and over again, or even if you're hearing it for the first time this morning, And yet you're holding out and trying to do better and trying to make a little better showing and trying to recover yourself just a little bit before you come to Christ because it only makes sense to your mind that you need to contribute at least something to your redemption. If that is your way of thinking this morning, stop listening to your own carnal reasoning and hear the word of the Lord, which says, by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works. And you believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And then before we leave this point concerning divine words in this chapter, we need to notice briefly that there is a further collection of divine words in verse 26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho with the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Now, I realize the text indicates that these are Joshua's words, and in fact that he put them in the mouths of the people. But later on in the scriptures, we're told that the words of Joshua 6.26 were, quote, the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun, the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, 1 Kings 16.34. And the reason this curse comes up again later on in the Bible is because a foolish man came along and did exactly what the Lord had forbidden anyone ever to do back in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. And I'll tell you plainly that Just as events played out, just like God said when Israel obeyed His commandments at Jericho, in the same way events also played out just like God said when the word of the Lord in verse 26 was flouted at a later date. 
In his days healed the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And the same thing will happen to you and to me if we continue to think ourselves wiser than God, if we continue to set aside His commandments in favor of our own wisdom. When you do that, you proceed at great personal cost. And when you do that with the gospel, if you continue to push your need for Christ out of your conscience, you will proceed with the loss of your very soul. But it needn't be that way. If you will only listen to divine words today and take God at them and trust His wisdom over yours and go His way instead of your own. And I hope you will. So then we've spent a good deal of time thinking about the divine words in this chapter, the way we ought to long for them, the way they often defy our limited capacities for logic and the way in which they always prove true to those who are true to them. Divine words, those are surely the primary words that require our attention in this passage. But we do also need to spend a few moments thinking about the human words that are referred to in Joshua chapter 6 as well. Human words. So first of all, did you notice in verses 22 through 25 how Joshua, Joshua made sure that his army kept their word? to Rahab the harlot and to her family. Now just before we look at these verses, do you remember Rahab's story from chapter 2? Rahab was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho and therefore surely having grown up as a pagan, as an idol worshiper. But God, by His amazing grace, the same grace by which He saved you and me, reached down into this woman's life and changed her heart so that she could say of the God of Israel in chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And her newfound faith in the God of Israel was such that when two Israelite spies showed up in Jericho on a reconnaissance mission ahead of the battle, Rahab welcomed the spies in peace and hid them in the stalks of grain on her roof and helped them escape by throwing the king's bloodhounds off of their scent. And in exchange for her kindness, the spies promised to spare Rahab and her family when the Lord gave the city of Jericho into their hands. And now, in chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, we find that they kept their word and that Rahab and her family became adopted Israelites. They became part of the family of God, verse 25. And all of this... The story of Rahab as we found it in chapter 2 and as we continue it here in chapter 6 is important, first of all, in explaining how this Canaanite woman eventually came to be married into the family from which King David and eventually King Jesus would spring. Read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and there you will find Rahab. And she's also important, as we saw when we looked at chapter 2, because she's a wonderful illustration of God's love for and desire for and ability to save the outsider, those people who seem the least likely candidates to become a part of the family of God. God's love for the foreigner, like Rahab of Jericho, for the pagan, like this woman from Canaan, for the 'er ne'er-do-well, like this harlot living on the city walls. God delights in saving the outsider, and we learn that 
from Rahab. And then back to my main point here, Rahab is also important because her rescue in verses 22 and following is a stellar example of how seriously the people of God ought to take not only God's word, but our own word as well. Now, let's all be relieved by the reminder that we're not God. Only God is able to make promises, as in this chapter, and to make it work out every single time, just like he said. You and I aren't able to do that, are we? Which is one reason why we should be careful about swearing oaths and making grand promises. But sometimes, even when we make simple promises, promises that seem ever so easy for us to keep, things conspire against us so that we're not able to follow through. So, for instance, while I told Miss Bev last Saturday that I would pick her up for church Sunday morning at 10.30, the late unpleasantry known as a tree branch in my eye prevented me from keeping my word. And yet, let me just remind you that though that sometimes happens, let me remind you from the account of Rahab's rescue that as far as we are able realizing that we're not always able, but as far as we are able, it ought to be the goal of the people of God to fulfill our own words of commitment every time, just like we said. Did you notice in verse 22 how Joshua spoke, not just of rescuing Rahab, but of doing it in allegiance to the the spies' words? Joshua said, to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. As you have sworn to her. Such words may not be very weighty in our culture anymore, but they ought to carry great significance with the people of God. And so men, no matter what, you always do for your wife as you have sworn to her. And as church members, we always do for the church as we have sworn to her. And the same with our children and our husbands and our co-workers and our neighbors and so on. Recognizing that we are not God and that we cannot always come through like we thought we could, our modus operandi ought to be that as far as we are able, and even when doing so is personally costly, we will be people of our word. We will do as we have sworn. We will do all in our power to imitate our God and to do just what we said. There was perhaps no human advantage as far as Israel was concerned in sparing this woman Rahab, except that God is pleased and God honors his people when we keep our word. And so I urge you to be that kind of person not to think of your personal commitments in terms of what's expedient for you or what you can get away without doing, but to be a person of absolute dependability and integrity. The righteous man, says Psalm 15, swears to his own hurt and does not change. The righteous man, in other words, keeps his promises and makes his word his bond even when doing so proves more costly than he originally thought. And maybe this is a word in season to some of you this morning. Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. And then while we're thinking about human words, let me mention one other part of this account that I hope will not be too far off the beaten track. I mentioned on Wednesday night that we New Testament believers are not fighting the same sorts of battles as were Joshua and his men in times of old. 
So as we read on, we'll find that this book of Joshua is more and more filled with military conquest. And yet we turn over to the New Testament and we realize that Jesus and his apostles were not interested in military conquest at all. And so we may wonder what all the battles in the book of Joshua really have to teach us. But we do have to remember that while the New Testament is not a book and the New Testament church is not a nation that is set on military conquest, Jesus and his apostles are interested in conquest. The New Testament is interested in the expansion of a kingdom and the overflow of the pagan idols. And it's just that the New Testament paradigm of conquest is through joyful captivation of the human heart through willing swapping of allegiances that pagans make, not when they're bowed beneath a blade of steel, but when they're made whole, as Getty and Townend have put it poetically, made whole by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In this era before Christ's coming again, everyone who is conquered by Christ's army is brought over willingly like Rahab, not forcefully like her countrymen. And so the New Testament book of Acts, which shows the word of God spreading across the Mediterranean basin and the kingdom of God spreading across that part of the world and conquering heart after heart in city after city, the New Testament book of Acts is in some ways the New Covenant counterpart to the book of Joshua. And that brings us back to our point about human words because what I want you to notice in both books, Acts and Joshua, It's how the walls fall down and how the kingdom of God advances and how God triumphs when His people open their mouths. When His people open their mouths. Now I thought about whether this comparison was too much of a stretch and I decided it's worth our notice that the walls of Jericho fell in verse 20 not simply when the people finished up their seventh lap and not simply when the trumpets blew. The walls fell when the people of Israel opened their mouths in obedience to the commandment of God. Now, of course, it was God who brought down the walls of Jericho. We understand that. But he did it when his people shouted aloud. And that's still true today, isn't it? Read the book of Acts, and what you'll find is that lives were changed, people were converted, the darkness was pushed back, the church expanded, the kingdom of God pressed forward by means of proclamation. By means... Not of a war cry, of course, which is where the comparison with Jericho ends. But Jesus did go out again in the book of Acts as captain of the Lord's host. And his scepter, again in the book of Acts, was in the tongue of his people. Just like his battering ram was in the tongues of his people here in Joshua 6. And though this is surely not the main lesson to be gleaned from this chapter, I do want you to remember it when you think about this famous battle of Jericho. And I do want want you to appreciate it with a New Testament application as you go out among the Rahabs and the Jerichos that are all around you in this spiritually needy world. People around you need Christ. They need to be conquered by Him such that they willingly, joyfully bow their knee, shift their allegiance, and submit to His rule and by faith become like Rahab, a happy part of His family. But how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Do you see? The walls still come a-tumbling down, and the kingdom of God still advances when the people of God open their mouths. And here, as we close, is where divine words and human words come together. 
Because what is it that should come out of our mouths when we open them up for the Lord? Well, our words should be quotations and explanations and applications of God's word. How will they hear without a preacher? That's the importance of our words. But it's not just any words that we speak that have God's power behind them because Paul goes on to say in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the walls come tumbling down and in the words of William Sleeper, so many Rahabs are brought out of their bondage, sorrow and night and into God's freedom, gladness and light when divine words become human words in the proclamation of the gospel from your lips and from mine. Maybe that's happening even for someone this morning as I open my mouth in the preaching of this passage. And it will happen again and again in Cincinnati. If we are faithful, all of us, to open our mouths and proclaim the word of God about the Son of God. The people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city.